Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined by Sue Bowles. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Pete. Thanks for having me. Good morning, I should say, for you. So tell us, (laughs) Sue, where are you calling us from? I am calling you from Central Ohio in the United States. Wow. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on. It's, It's great to have you here. Tell us, Sue, who are you? What do you do and where are you from? Let me know oh, where you're uh, from. Yeah, yeah, I'm from Ohio. Um, wow, what do I do? I, I am a life coach. I'm a certified, certified professional life coach. I specialize in life transitions and helping stuck people get unstuck. That's the best way to put it. In addition to that, I'm a speaker. I'm a published author. I, I do a bunch of podcasts. And uh, the biggest joy I have is being the caregiver to my mom as well. She's 87 now, and uh, her health's in, on decline, but she lives with me, and I get to be her health and her, her caregiver, and that's uh, very special to me as well. So, Okay. What, what, with your mother, what sort of stage is she at? Um, she's, she's had, she has congestive heart failure. She's had a stroke and a heart attack since 2017. Um, mm. so, she, so she's had a, a few different things. She's doing great now. She's actually mm. starting to take some steps in physical therapy, which has been a long time coming. So there's absolutely no quitting her. I, I get my fire from her. So. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'm sure it's been interesting times here with COVID and everything else. There's, there's a lot going on, I'm sure. Yeah, there is. You know, we're, we're doing everything we can to protect her. Um, yeah. Her great game daughter was supposed to come up and visit tomorrow, and she wanted to put that off just out of safety and precaution. So. Sure. Well, that's fair enough. Yeah. So tell us, what does fire in the belly mean to you, Sue? Fire in the belly means to me, what, what's my driving, uh, not passion, but if I had one message to get out to someone, what would that message be? And for me, I have a two-pronged message. It's simply that it's okay to not be okay. And the other one is that you only have to be a step ahead to help the person behind you. And, and those two messages go hand in hand. Because once you realize it's okay to not be okay, then you realize that you can help somebody else at the same time. Absolutely. That's so powerful. And does that, that comes from personal experience, Sue, is it, or is that something you've learned through time? Uh, yeah, that's personal experience, and um, it's it's also um, a great need that I see in 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 the world nationally, nationally, internationally, is for people to be willing to take off their masks mm. and, and to realize that I don't have I don't have to play the game. Behind me, there's a, a quote on my wall mm. that says, it's "Not going to matter if you have a few scars. It will matter if you didn't live." And that's by Rich Mullins, who is a uh, Christian musician, died in 1997, who, by the way, absolutely loved Ireland. And uh, so, um, so that, that quote there is kind of the bedrock of everything behind my, my, my messages, that it's okay to not be okay, and you only have to be a step ahead to help the person behind you. Because I think we wear a lot of masks. We try to make people believe we're someone that we're not. 
and we hurt ourselves and we lose ourselves in that process. Yeah. In that game, I should say, because it's a game. When you say it's a game, that's an interesting way of looking at it. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I, th- I think I love that analogy, you know, cause pe- people are almost saying, well, I'm only me and you know, who can I help? As you say, to, to have been on the journey at all, that in itself is very powerful, you know, and to be willing to reach out. Yeah. And I, I, I say it's a game because we're playing a game with ourselves. You know, it's mm. a game of hide and seek. <laughs> you know, it, it is because you're trying not to be found out. When you're playing hide and seek, you're pl- trying not to be found out by the person who's it, or whatever you ever even phrase that. And you're always hiding, and you're dodging, and you're hiding in the shadows, and you're trying to disguise your whereabouts. And that's the same kind of thing we play the games ourselves, because there's something inside ourselves that we are not comfortable with, proud of, we might be ashamed of, we're hurt, we don't know how to deal with it, we're confused, we don't know what we're feeling, and then the emotions still try to find a way out, and they come out in unhealthy ways. So it's a game we're playing with ourselves because we don't want to face what's real. And then it also becomes a game we're playing with others because we're not being authentic in our relationships with others. I'm going to go straight in deep here because I'm just (laughs) curious. When you say we're hiding from ourselves, is that multi-layered or is that almost like our subconscious or, or where, when you say that, can you describe what that means? I, I think it's, um, I think it's subconscious. Okay. But I think some, sometimes we, sometimes we do it intentionally. Sometimes we put on the brave face. Sometimes we put on the, I have to be strong for everybody else. I, I was having a coaching call with someone last week and they were talking about how, they have to be strong for everybody else and how even if they are falling apart inside, they feel the need to keep up that persona because that's all those people have ever known. And and that person believes people in their lives would not know how to interact if that person let in and let on a little more to what's really going on behind the scenes. Mm. So I think, I think it, it, it is conscious and it's also subconscious. Is there, is, that a, is there an element of pleaser gene in there? Is there ego at play there when someone's doing that? Or is it, is it a, a genuine want to help? What do you think? I think it's both. I, 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 mm. I think when you want to come off as being the strong one, it can start off. I, I, I think when you start off being the strong one, it, come, it starts out as um, trying to be protective of yourself. Sure. But then as people say, man, nothing gets you down and you're just always so strong and you, you just keep going to what, no matter what, that adds into it and could become an ego issue, but also mm-hmm. adds to having to build up and keep up that persona. And then it, it becomes it, it comes a successful whirlpool or a tornado because then you might start really crumbling on the inside and you're getting this validation from the outside of people saying how strong you are and I wish I was like you. Mm. And they don't know what's going on. So I think mm. it came both ways. That's interesting. And, and I suppose even, well, you know from yourself, from, from caring for your mother, you know, it's, it's two things. Because caring for someone is, is both, both a very caring, you know, it's, it's, it's a very genuine thing to do, but also it can validate in some ways and also vice versa. It could, people can feel that it's holding them back too. So there's, there's all these different things at play, right? There are. And for a while... I, 
um, I, I had that attitude like it was holding me back. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to go into speaking and coaching and all those things. And I felt like I couldn't do it while I was taking care of my mom. And my counselor challenged me. and She said, why can't your mom be around when it starts out? And, and, and that, that challenged me. And it also allowed me to let my mom into that aspect of my life. And that has just been the, 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 the most joyous things to include her. You know, to, 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 even though, you know, it's like, mom, I'm not available right now. Her, her home health aides here, uh, you know, but you know, to let her know that I'm doing these different things and affecting lives, no matter where I speak. And, and I, I hope that brings her joy. That's not what I do it for, but I hope that's an out, out, outcry of it. I love that. I think that's a, that's a beautifully wise view to take on. And so it's, it's a kind of a win-win, you know, you're actually able to, because so many people are going through stages in their life, and I know myself, I have young kids. So, and I'll be honest and say, there's times when I go on, you know, God, if the kids weren't here, or when the kids are older, mm-hmm. or if I wasn't having to do this, so you know, and there's 50 reasons and blaming everyone else, but it doesn't always have to be. Fair enough, you can't. I can't just disappear for a week, you know, because <laughs> right. the kids right. need fed and one thing or another. But, yeah. but there is, there is compromises available too, right? Yeah, there are, and and I think. Um, you know, when I was growing up, my dad, when he was frustrated, he would sing a song from a musical, When the Kids Get Married. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's a joke now, but you know, we knew that was when he was frustrated with us. And I think all of us go through that. We're human. And, and when we boil that down, sometimes it gets down to being selfish. Sometimes it just gets down to self-care issues. Of this, okay, this is showing me that I need a break. So, so I need to build in some time somewhere. And, even, and taking a break equates to self-care. So it, it can be revealing when we have those attitudes. And it's a matter of what we do as we dig into, you know, why am I feeling this way? And, and taking ownership of what we need to take ownership of and not placing the blame on somebody else or deflecting that blame. That's easy to do. It's easy to make it somebody else's scapegoat. But it really boils down to, okay, what am I really feeling? You know, when I'm frustrated about something, I can blame somebody. I'll say, well, you, 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 you. And that breaks all the rules of conversation and, and, and argument. But as, as I back it down, okay, it's not so much you. It's, okay, I am feeling this because of this. Mm-hmm. And then it turns the table. It, turn, it turns the coin to, okay, what I am feeling. And that is driving how I am responding. That is driving how I am interacting with you. And that's driving how I'm interpreting what you're saying. And I might be totally off because my filter is off. That's interesting. When you say filter, can you, know, can you explain that for, for people and myself? Sure. sure. Um, I think filter is, is what we feed into what is happening. Mm. So for, for, for example, um, you know, if you're at work and you're, someone's having a bad day and you just sent them an email that you kind of, you, you were maybe correcting something that, that, that they said, then you send them this email. They may or may not have gotten an email, but because they're having a bad day, they walk by you and timing is everything. So they're walking by you already in their zone, having a bad day, looking irritated. You feed into it. I just sent this email and now this person's really mad at me and they're going to have to get over it or whatever. That's a filter because okay. you're not looking at, you're not looking at everything that's going on. You're not looking at all of the facts. You're putting a lot of assumptions into something and you're working, then letting those assumptions affect your emotions, which feed into the situation. And it is nigh on impossible because, you know, the, the old, what's the expression? You know, if, if you could walk a, 
the mile in another man's shoes, I think, some, somewhere along yeah. the lines of that, because we all don't know what each one of us is experiencing or our views on it or past experiences of certain things that we apply that filter mm-hmm. or that belief to, right? So, you know, the worst or the, the best thing you can do is just ask, ask the question, right? You know, you're... Yeah, and that's a risk because if you're risking, if that person is angry, where's it going to go? Mm-hmm. And, are you, and are you prepared to deal with that? Do you have your filters under control enough to be able to have that conversation? Or do you have your your communication skills and boundaries set up enough to say, okay, you know, right now we need to talk about this, but I don't think this is a good time for either of us. Can we schedule a different time when we both have time to cool off or something like that? So, yeah, it's a risk, mm-hmm. but it comes down to do I value this situation enough to take that step? Makes sense. What's your superpower, Sue? What's my superpower? Wow. Uh, finding a way to get through whatever life throws my way. Well, is that for okay. you or how you can involve others? Both. Both, mm-hmm. because I can't get through without involving others. Mm. But but what, what, it, what it has, maybe the best way to put it, the example going through my mind right now, I'm a Christian. My faith is the bedrock of everything I do. That gives me my anchor. That gives me my hope. That gives me my center. That gives me my life sure looks like hell right now. It looks like crap, but I'm going to still hang on and get through this somehow. Back in 2014, no, 2013, my brother had to serve prison time. He was in a drunk driving accident. Uh, He had to serve 18, 18 months in prison. So he lives with me, and he and I tag team taking care of mom. So I was looking 18 months of just being the sole caregiver for mom and somehow a situation like that can really um really affect the family there's so many emotions going on you can be mad at the person or you can help them get through our family i will never say prison time is fun we managed to make it fun for all of us so we had once he decided to take responsibility because he went through you know a while of De- denying what happened. He, he was an alcoholic, or he was an alcoholic, but he was still actively drinking. So he was trying to figure out how to get out of it. When he got into recovery and quit drinking and started working through, through the AA steps, he said, I need to own up to this. I, I screwed up. This is my responsibility. So when he made his decision to change his plea, we knew that it would cost him at least a year of his life in prison. That was, that was the minimum. Mm-hmm. And um, we had, you know, we rallied the truth. We got everybody. Once he made the decision, we scheduled a huge going away party. The night before we had an epic party. I, I have a 1,276 square foot house. And we had 20 people crammed in this house to the point my neighbor called me at 10 o'clock and said, is mom okay? I see all the cars over there. <laughs> we were sending him out in style. And so, you know, we, we went in to know he was celebrated his sponsor was there gave him his one year sobriety coin right before he went to the judge the next day and then um we had so many surprise we pulled off so many surprises in the prison prison visiting room they did my 50th surprise party in the prison visiting room i mean so 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 the superpower is making the best out of a bunch of lemons finding a way to make something fun even with everything that was going on with mom 
you know, when she was in the hospital, she was in the hospital for two months with her on her the first time with her heart stuff and then GI bleeds and she lost five units of blood and we thought we we're going to lose her in the whole deal. And then she spent two months in rehab uh, getting stronger. Scott and I, Scott's my brother, Scott and I would go over there every Friday night and we would have family fun night. And we would play cards, we'd bring in outside food, we'd just hang out in her room and make it fun. We were there visiting any any of the day, but Friday nights, we were there for a few hours, playing cards, having fun, making it fun for mom. That's just what our family does. So that, that, that's why I mean, I can't make, some, you know, it has to involve other people, mm. but I, 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 I am one of the ones that kind of is a driving force to, okay, this is the situation and we're going to make the best out of it. And just out of curiosity, does the does the Christianity side does that run through the whole family, or is it something you've taken on yourself? I was the first Christian. We were raised Catholic, okay, and then I was the first to become Christian. Uh, since then, Mom and Scott and Dad are all Christian as well. Um, my sister and two of my brothers, um, actually, there might be one or two other Christians in the family as well. I'm not quite sure. Mm. So siblings there, so you've, I'm trying to work this out, so you have two brothers and a sister? I have three brothers and a sister. Three brothers and a sister, very good. Yeah. So where, where do you fall in the, in the rank then? Smack dab in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> young, young, youngest of two girls, smack dab in the middle. Nice, I like it. So talk to us about growing up. Where, where did you grow up? And talk to us a wee bit about the, the, uh, even the young Sue. Oh, wow. Um, where I am now is not where I was when, and, and that's that's the, the best the best way to introduce it as an introduction. To all. My story actually starts when I was in first grade. Um, I I am a childhood rape survivor. I was raped by a classmate when I was seven years old after school one day in first grade, and it became my fifteen year old secret. I did not tell anybody until my senior year of college. Um, be, and the way I phrase it, when I speak, when I share my story, um, when you start off course, the longer you go, the further off course you get. My emotions became frozen in time that day. And the longer you're in the freezer, the thicker the ice gets. Mm. So by the time I finally tell somebody 15 years later, there's a whole bunch of frost on buildup. And I say that to then say that that set my life to trajectory in very formative years to be emotionally unstable. And, and I didn't know that at the time, because here's the thing, back in the seventies, rape was not on the radar. It was mm. not something to be, that was even considered or thought of. And it certainly wasn't even something to be considered for a seven year old. So all I knew was something had happened, but I didn't have the words. And no one knew to ask because it wasn't on the radar. No one did anything wrong that day except Bobby. He is the only person that did something wrong that day. And it's all his fault. Now it took a long time for me to be able to say that. And I can go into that later. But getting back to what, you know, what, what was young Sue, I started out with that. And so then um, because of that, you know, the, the middle school teenage years were worse for me mm. because that's where I started up with the, started realizing that I, I was an angry girl. I was angry. 
when I worked fast food, I punched the boxes in the walk-in when I was mad. I punched a locker in high school and dented it. So, you know, I, I, I was very, very angry. You know and what? yet I remember, I, I'm sorry. Do you know why you were angry? No, I, I was, I, I don't know that I could identify it at that point in time. Mm. I know now, I know now, but not then. Um, but I was hurting. I, I, I mm. was hurting. I was, you know, mom and dad were both working jobs. I was feeling isolated, alone. We were latchkey kids. Um, so I didn't have the communication skills. And then we had a family that was starting to get separated as kids got older. You know, I, I remember one time, um, you know, one of my siblings, and, and this is just normal stuff. You know, as, as kids grow up, they're going to have this conflict with their parents as, as the kids are developing their autonomy. But I remember one time, one of my older siblings got in some kind of yelling match with mom and dad, mom or dad, one of them. And I remember telling myself, it'll never happen to me. So I learned right then just to shove it off and not say anything. So I say, all, and again, all this though is founded in that day in first grade. I see that now. When I was going through it, I didn't. I've been suicidal twice in my life. My parents divorced me after 34 years of marriage, and I wanted to die. But my Christianity is the one thing that gave me the hope to hang on. And I can get into that part of the story a little bit, too. Um, through all this, I developed an eating disorder. And uh, I've been in recovery for an eating disorder for about four years now. Because I really didn't even start dealing with that until after I dealt with the rape, which was six years ago. So... You know, young Sue was really screwed up, and it came out in so many different ways. There was a real starving for attention. So activity became my number. I, I got over-involved because if I was seen, that, that's what I equated it to. Because if someone knew I existed, then I mattered. So in college, that became getting over-involved in, in everything. Thing. I would take an overload of classes. I was working two jobs. I was working 20 hours a week and I was in so many campus activities. I would start my home at 10 o'clock at night, do homework in the morning, get up at six to be first in, in line for breakfast at 7.15. I do not recommend that. That is not healthy in any way, shape or form. Mm. But that's how much I was not taking care of myself. I was on the verge of becoming an alcoholic. I was drinking like a fish at one point in time. So there was just so much going on. Mm. So where I was then is nowhere near where I am now. But where I am now is because of where I was when. It's, it's phenomenal, isn't it, when you look back at how something, you know, tragically that something happened to you at such an early age that everything thereafter was built upon that poor foundation, let's put it that way, you know, or that that event and unfortunately as, as humans it's realizing that we do stack it you know it's unfortunately it's not even compartmentalized off to the side it's things are built on top of that and then that shifts your belief system and that sets off a whole chain of events because at seven you don't necessarily know any better right no you don't and, and again i i didn't have the words i didn't know what happened hmm. and 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 again no one knew what to ask because it wasn't on the radar in, in, in the 70s, early 70s, it just wasn't happening, you know, so. Um, I, I sort of, I didn't quite pick you up correctly, so it was a classmate? It was a classmate, yeah. Wow. Yep. Yeah, seven, wow. 
That's, That's what she said to me was it, 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 it happened on the school grounds. There was the woods. And, and back then it was, you know, we walked to school. It was safe to walk to school. We were probably half, three quarters of a mile from school. So we'd walk off to home from school. And um, there was some woods right before the sidewalk went up, went up the slope over into the streets. We'd cut through you know, on the sidewalks to get home. And um, he just, he lured me into the, into the woods one day. And for 45 minutes, held me against my will. And my mom came looking for me. My mom loved me to come looking for me. And she was scared, but she came looking for me because her daughter was late. She didn't know why. And that's the greatest love. That's the greatest love when somebody comes searching for you. And that was my reason to get out. I heard mom's voice and I thought, I got to go. I asked my mom, I have to go. And he went out the other end of the woods. And his last words to me were, don't tell anybody. And I didn't remember that for a really long time. And I didn't realize the power those words would have to put me in a prison. But I broke out a number of years ago. And those words don't keep me captive anymore. Because what am I doing now? I'm sitting here sharing my story on an international podcast. So those, those words hold no weight over me anymore. Do you, do you remember the, the feeling at the time? What, what um, your sort of your takeaway was at that time there was fear of getting caught because yeah. just you know and, and that that's a normal seven-year-old thing mm. you know um so and like i said you know, there, there was so much as i look back on it now so much that fed into it or, or not fed into it but so much that was fed into as a result of that day uh but the joy is that it, have that claim on me anymore that's mm. the joy of it and now you, know, you asked earlier my superpower um it, i my joy the superpower is making good come out of that and i gotta say it's not me that does that god's the one that makes it all happen he's the one that turns that turns the beauty from the ashes he's the one doing all this but that's 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 the that's my fire in the belly. That's when I say it's okay to not be okay, and you only have to be a step ahead to help the person behind you. That's what drives this, mm-hmm. because I've lived it and I'm living it now. Yes. I love your reflection, <laughs> especially, you know, and, and it's interesting, you know, that it's taken you the guts of a lifetime to 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 get through it all. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and for an event that's, as you say, like, you know, 45 minutes, but that has completely changed your life. And it goes to show that it can happen. And that's, that's mm-hmm. the, the, it's a scary mm-hmm. situation. Is scary the right word? I don't even know if it is. Traumatic. Mm. Yeah. That was a trauma. And, and, and yeah, I have to say, I got to give a shout out here. I have had the best counselor that I, I can't imagine being match with any other person. I have been with her since 2008. I've been with her 12 years, a little over 12 years now. April was 12 years. And she has taken me places I never knew I needed to go. She has opened doors I never thought I would want to open. And she's walked that entire journey with me. And it's because of that hard work that I am where I am now. Um, her name is Amanda Washell. She's with Grace Recovery Counseling out of South Carolina. And, oh, my goodness. Um, I, I, I have 
found courage and healing in working with her. And she'll be the first to say that I'm the one that does the work. And I said, yeah, I'm the one that does the work, but you should help guide me. You know, um, when I speak, I tell people there's no way around the healing mountain. You have to go through it. And, and I speak from experience. But you know, when, when I first started with Amanda, I was grieving the death of a friend. And my eating disorder um, red flags were starting to come back up. And that's what led me to being introduced to Amanda. And over time, we talked about a lot of things. And because the foundation was off to start with, a lot of things I was dealing with currently at that time were off. And, and she said, it was the second or third session that she, that, that, you know, she, she found out about the rape. And um, in the second session, and we knew for a long time that made the list of stuff to talk about, but I also wasn't ready to. And she later told me that we had to get me present and stronger in the present so we could then deal with the past. I had boundary issues like you would not believe. We had to get me eating, you know, just so that I you know, stopped the downhill spiral I was on. So we dealt with that. So then finally by 2014, we were so six years later, we were finally strong enough with current day stresses and anxieties and skills to be able to start looking back. And the hardest homework she gave me was early on dealing with this. And I had to look in the mirror, look myself in the eyes 10 times a day for a week and say out loud, the rape was not my fault. And it was not good enough to say it was not my fault because she, I had to name it. And it took about two days before I started to believe that. And, and I'm so glad she had me go through that exercise because I needed to hear me tell myself verbally because up to then it was not what I was telling myself non-verbally. So, you know, that healing, you know, that's 2014. Rape happened back in the 70s. That's a heck of a long time till you're dealing with it. But I'm here to say it's possible. I'm living proof it's possible. It is not easy. It is not for the faint of heart. You cannot do it alone. But it's possible and there is hope. I'm trying to do the math here. It's like 1977, something like that. Uh, let's see. Is that right? Have I done that right? Early, earlier than that. Earlier than that. I think, I think probably somewhere around 73. Yeah, I got my calculator over here too. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Can I before we sort of get into what what what's your take on it now? From a Christian perspective, I suppose, is or what I mean, never mind. Well, just tell me what your take is on it, if you don't mind. What's my my take on it as a Christian from uh, on the rape? Well, yeah, just the whole thing. Do you have an overall arching perspective on it now? Yeah, I do. God can make it good. Um, what I can say, I struggled a lot with being pissed off at God. I was hacked up. I was angry. I was blaming him. Why did you abandon me? Where were you in this? How could you let this happen? If you're God, why, why did this happen? Mm. And what I can say is that, how do I want to phrase this? I don't, want to, I don't want to leave any room for someone to misconstrue. What I can say is that 
ever since the fall in the garden, Adam and Eve, up to that point in time, every day when God created something, he said it was good. After Adam and Eve sinned, violated God's word, the one thing he said not to do, he did. That is when God quit saying it's good. And it's something I just caught at a retreat I was on in June. Because ever since then, you know, God did this. In the morning and night, it was good. And he said it was good all the way through. And then as soon as Adam and Eve blew it for the rest of us, God quit saying it was good. So I say that because at that moment in time is when evil entered the world. What Bobby did was evil. But God, even though he lets people make their own decisions with free will, and even though God pursues us, he's, he, he loves us enough to, I'm really trying to figure out how I want to phrase this because I'm still formulating words on this whole aspect of things. Um, what I can say is that God did not make this happen, okay? Mm-hmm. God did not cause this to happen. I had to work through that because Bobby made his choice. God loves us enough to let us make our own choices, and he's mm-hmm. there waiting for us when we screw up. So the same way I made my choice, subconscious as it was, and how to respond to this, and then that set me off on a whole trajectory, God has been sitting there waiting for me. So my perspective to this is that um, God works it all together for good, for the good. And, mm. and, and here, here's the other thing. Let me share this out of Corinthians, because this is the other thing that strikes me. I need to find it here. Um, bear with me real quick here. There's a verse that talks about how, uh, here it is. This is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. That's my take on it, is that God works it together, works it for good. And the, you know, what, what the enemy meant for evil, God means for good. The enemy wanted to have take me out of the game that day. Mm. And it didn't happen. And instead, the comfort that God gave me through others to deal with things, he is now allowing me to use that to give to others. That's my take on it, is that God is working it for good, and I have a responsibility to share my story. I have a responsibility because once I realize that I have value, not because I'm seen, not for what I do, but simply because God loves me. Once I realize that, I then realize that I also have, have the opportunity and most of all the responsibility to share my story because that's how I give God the glory through it all. Are you where you're supposed to be? Right now, yes, and still moving. Hmm. Because you know, it's, it's a step-by-step. You know, you know, my website is my step ahead. And the whole thing about... Um, you only have to be a step ahead to help the person behind you is about embracing where you are now and living fully in that while still moving ahead. So am I where I, where I got, I need to be right now? Yes. And I'm still moving ahead. That's quite something to be able to sort of 
put your put your own boots on as such, you know, to be comfortable in your events of your past, um, everything else to, to be willing and able to accept that. That's quite some journey. It, ha- it has been quite a journey. Um, and honestly, it's only been the last six years that I've gotten to this point. I, I, that, that, quote, that quote on the wall we started talking about, um, I'm sitting here kind of shaking just because I get, I, I get emotional about it, but mm-hmm. because I'm excited about it too, is that um, over the course of the last six years, I have become involved in a retreat program. And it's called Walking Stick Retreats. And those people have been what I call Jesus with skin on. And they have loved me in my brokenness. They've given me a safe place to be broken. And they've loved me and let God use them to show me how much he loves me. And that love has walked me through my healing journey and given me the courage to deal with things. When I, a little backstory on this, uh, because this is so, this is such a pivot point. You can see the smile on my face. This is such a pivot point in my life that I, I, I love sharing this part because I'm not where I am now without this retreat. And, and, and let me say, there's no special formula in this retreat, but it's the atmosphere they set to let the Holy Spirit do his work. That's what's special about it is they get out of God's way and let God do his thing. And so that's what's special. And because I was allowed to have that environment, I could deal with God directly and God could deal with me in very soft, tender ways. So a little bit of the backstory. Back in 2013, 2014, a movie came out about Rich Mullins, the gentleman who, who was attributed to that quote. The movie was called Ragamuffin, and it was based on Rich's life. I saw the movie, and it was a very hard watch. And this is January 2014 when I saw it. I did a lot of silent, you know, secret wiping of the tears in a group of 10 people because I didn't want anybody to know why I was hurting. I was at a point in my life at that point in time where I was broken, and I was barely holding on. We had just started dealing with the rape. Um, all these emotions were starting to come up and, and I was fighting the process, which didn't help anything. So anyway, so later in the summer, the, the movie director and the family and friends of Rich who were involved in the movie uh, decided they wanted to do a retreat to continue talking about the themes of the movie, which were reckless faith. Um, we have reckless abandon, um, you know, family relationships, brokenness you know, struggling, struggling with those kinds of things in your life and masks, wearing masks. And I went on the first retreat. Now I was fearful like crazy when, when I, when I, when I went on that retreat. Um, and I looked at my counselor and said, he said, we got six weeks, get me ready because I was not ready for it to go. I, and I looked at her and said, I just want to be authentic. So what ended up happening was that, um, we were sent, spent six weeks getting ready, talking about my fears, my anxieties, and everything. And um, I ended up, I went there, and that was the first time I shared my story because they have a retreat room. And, and in that retreat room that first year, we were all sharing our stories. I was reading other, about other people's stories, but I wasn't sharing mine. About four days in, I finally decided to take, to take the plunge. And I was so scared because it was my first time I had shared my, public, my story publicly very first time and I was so convinced that I was going to be judged and ridiculed and blamed I was looking on Facebook for comments all day long and not one single comment was negative or judgmental 
or condemning or anything. Instead, it was, I'm so sorry that happened to you. You are so brave. Your courage is giving me courage. So we went to the retreat and God started breaking through. And that first year was powerful. The second year was powerful. And each one has been a building block. And each year I walked away with something else. And each year we would, my counselor and I would get a big bump from this retreat. She said we easily got a six month bump just from what would happen during that retreat and what God would do in my life and how I was applying that. And now we're to the point that it's kind of like retreat creeps up on us because you know, it's just been so powerful. But what is, what's so special for me to share is that yeah, I'm not here where I am without those people and them letting God work through them. Um, they, are, they are my tribe, they're my folks, they're my family, and, and they are so insanely special to me because they've shown me that I have value, that I'm not wait, a waste of time and space, which is what I was thinking when I first got there. That first retreat, I was the holy exception. Everything was good for everybody else but me. I was too screwed up, too far gone, and blown it too many times. There's no way God could love me. I left that retreat saying for the first time and believing, starting to believe that Jesus Christ is absolutely crazy about me. And not, God not only loves me, but he likes me. And that just started a whole process. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's been quite the journey. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's allowed me to do what I'm doing now. And I'm doing what I'm doing now because of the journey that I've been on. That's, I mean, that is an amazing statement to say you wouldn't change it, which is phenomenal. I wouldn't, I would not have said that in the middle of it. There's no yeah. way I would say it in the middle of it. You know, hindsight, you know, when you're I'm trying to think of a good analogy, you know, when you're out playing in the mud, all you're doing is getting muddy. If you're trying to make a mud sculpture, you know, all you see is the dirt and the mud. And, and but if there's a vision of what it could be that keeps you going. And you might be caked with mud half an inch deep on your hands and your legs and your boots and everything. But then when you step back and see what's been created, you're like, all the crap I got on me right now is worth it because I can shed this and that remains. Mm -hmm. Looking back, I mean, how how could you have helped yourself, or what would you have done differently, or what would you advise yourself looking back? Oh wow, um, I would have said something sooner. I would have said something sooner, and, and, and I'm not, and I kind of don't like playing that game in some ways. Because it's not, it's not what it should have could have landed. Mm, I'm yeah. not blaming myself. And anyone listening to me who is struggling with anything we've talked about, hear me clearly. You are not to blame. It's not your fault. Mm. You didn't do anything wrong. Your only responsibility is to yourself to get yourself the help you need and support you need to reach out so that you can be healed as well. That's your only responsibility. Having said that, Looking back, and the best way to say it is that it's not so much what I would, would have said to myself because I wasn't in that state of mind. Instead, it's what am I saying now to someone else who might be in that position. Mm -hmm. That's the better way I want to look at that question. 
That's the better way I answer that one. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it is to look back and, and to empower others. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it's what would you do different? Sometimes, right. you know, that may, the story and, and the, the journey may resonate with somebody else. And, and that's the thing. If you sit or say, if I'd have done X, Y, and Z, that's right. the benefit of, you know, that's why you speak. That's why you're an author is to actually, well, I, I would perceive that's the case that actually to help others, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's cathartic yeah. for yourself. Yeah. That, that's where the whole concept of my step ahead came in. That, that, that thing, my step ahead actually came from a, pa- a teaching of my pastor back in 2015, I think it was. Yeah. He was doing a teaching on discipleship. And he said, what does it take to help, to, you know, to, to help somebody? And, and everyone thinks they always, the answer is you, people think they have to have it all together. You know, I can't help somebody until I'm so messed up. I can't help somebody else. I'm busy enough trying to deal with my own stuff. I, I can't help anybody. I'm, I'm, you know, waste in that area. And, and his, his, his comment was, you only have to be a step ahead. And what that means, how this plays out in, in my life. I'm still seeing my counselor. We're still things we're working through in other aspects of my life. So I'm still reaching out ahead. Your hand on the screen so I can see it. I'm still reaching out ahead to her. But now I'm also strong enough where I can reach out behind me and help the person behind me because everyone is always a step ahead of somebody else. No one is in it. We're not in a straight line. Humanity is not in a straight line. There's always someone behind you, always someone ahead of you, someone behind you who can use your help. And because you're a step ahead, you can help them. And always someone ahead of you where you can use their help because they're a step ahead of you. And when we all join hands like that, it's a human chain supporting each other, helping each other continue to make process progress. So that's where the concept of my step ahead came in. So that's why I speak. I've gone through the healing journey of that part of my life. And now I can share that much. That's where my book title came from. This much I know that this book, this book, my first book, and back up. Can I show the picture of it? Please do. All right. Here's the picture of the book. It's called This Much I Know. Do it on the camera. This Much I Know, The Space Between. It's on Amazon and Kindle. And um, I started writing this after the first retreat. Now it took five years, four years to write. I didn't realize what it was going to take to write it or what was going to come out. And it kind of morphed into a different, different thing. But the whole process of this book, This Much I Know is my story. All of us have our story. That's the one thing we know that no one can take away from us. So this much I know. My story is the first half of the book. A lot more than what we've talked about here. Um, And the second half, the space between, is the part of the healing journey. This much I know no one can take away from me. This much I know is what I've learned up to this point in time. So that's what the book is, is. Now, I already have titles and concepts for books two and three. And I'm getting ready to start book number two. And oddly enough, book number two is going to be This Much I Know. It's okay to not be okay. And we're going to dig deeper into that whole aspect about masks, about why we play the games we do, about why, why those insecurities are there, and, and, and coming to grips with it's okay to not be okay. It's... I suppose I'm, I'm <laughs> in so many ways it's it's inspiring and it's 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 breathtaking and I suppose 
It's it's a great example in some ways, you know, because people sort of saying, you know, when you do, you think, you know, fears and concerns and anxiety and all things, you know, people think that they build up over years. I mean, this mm -hmm. is one 45 minute event, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, habits are for everything is just the entire value shift off the back of that as a percentage of your life. It's minuscule. Mm -hmm. However, the impact is literally life-changing right you know and it's it's you know the best way i sort of describe when people are saying you know well, habits take a time it's like well if you're a child and you get stung by a wasp or a bee or hornet or whatever <laughs> that changes your life forever because it, it forms and you know you've gone through the you, know, you went through that trauma mm -hmm. and uh yeah it's phenomenal but I love your energy now. It's, it's, it's so powerful. Well, I appreciate that. And, and again, it's, you know, I, I love the name of your show, Fire in the Belly, because you can see this is my fire in the belly. This mm -hmm. is what drives me because I want to be, when I speak, when I write, when I you know, present at a conference, when I do coaching with clients, I want to be that person that is, is one more person telling them what they need to hear. And sometimes it takes multiple times over a number of years to hear the same message. Mm -hmm. I want to get in line and be part of that process. I want to be part of that chorus because not everybody is going to buy into it's okay to not be okay the first time when they just got burned the night before and they've been burned the week before and the year before and everything and their self-talk is just taking them down the tubes. No one's going to buy into that right away. But if I can be one more voice that's what I want to be. That's what I am being now. I just want to be one more voice to help sing the song. Yeah. It's yeah. Honestly, I find it. I find it's, it's awesome. <laughs> so talk to us. I mean, through teenage years, you you described yourself as angry. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, I know now. But you know, because I was hurting, I didn't know how to ask for help. Sure. So I, I was, um, you know, my self-talk, again, because I was in the freezer so long, my thoughts and my emotions, because I was so far off, I wasn't interpreting things right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't have the words. So I started acting out in other ways to get that attention. Because, again, if I was seen, I was cared about. Yeah. And, and so, you know, so the anger came out. And yet... It mainly happened at home because I didn't want anybody at home to worry about me because I wanted to be the strong one. They had enough going on. They didn't need to be worried about me too. So I remember one day walking up to the house after this is high school and walking up to the house and step, waiting outside the door, literally going and putting a smile on my face and walking in the door, literally, because I didn't want anybody to know. And yet I was dying on the inside. But, um, you know, when I got, let me talk a little bit about the eating disorder up in college. When I got into college, the eating disorder kind of started in high school, but it really took root in college. And I went to a small college in Northwest Ohio called Defiance College. Absolutely loved school. Very proud of being in love. And uh, at that time, there was one dining hall and you had set hours to eat. And if you miss those windows, you miss that meal. So it would get to the point where 
And again, because I was so far off base, my mind was not interpreting things right. And over time, because I was not eating right, my brain would not process things as well, correctly either. So I had this mask, I had this persona of Sue's super involved, Sue's got it all together, Sue's the strong one, wow, look at Sue, she's doing everything and she's still passing school. Um, so my mind twisted that in, case of the, in, in the case of the dining hall. I may have been hungry, which is a very human need, a necessary need, a felt need, a normal need. But my brain twisted it that if I go up for more food, if I go up for a second helping, then everybody's looking at me and they're gonna know Sue has a need. And God forbid Sue has a need because that means Sue's weak and everybody thinks Sue's strong. So I don't wanna, I don't wanna let them know I'm not. That's how it started out. So I learned how to shut my hunger off because I got uncomfortable in the dining hall. So I shut my hunger off. I would snack instead. And what I would do is I might have a bag of chips. And someone would say, hey, did you eat? Yeah, I ate. And as long as they didn't ask me what I ate, I wasn't lying because I ate a bag of chips. All they asked was, did I eat? But then they said, well, what'd you have? What'd you eat? Then I said, oh, I had a sandwich and some chips. Because again, eating disorders are cloaked in secrecy. You don't want to be found out. Are right? you seeing some corollaries here of other things we've talked about throughout the day? So the um, thing is, I called it odd eating behaviors, odd eating patterns. I even told people I had anorexic tendencies, but I never called it an eating disorder. And no one else did either. No one else addressed it with me until I met Amanda, who is actually an eating disorder counselor, who also specializes in a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, so when I got to her, we had to deal with that because here's the thing, eating disorders are not about vanity. They are not a diet gone wrong. Mm. It's not about wanting to look skinny or, ha or ha have the beach bod or anything like that. They are a mental health disorder, biologically based and they are treatable, and they are survivable. And anyone can have an eating disorder. They don't look like the stereotype, either highly overweight or severely underweight. You could not tell, for the most part, that I, didn't, that I had an eating disorder. Only when my weight got super low could you tell. Mm -hmm. But usually, there are, so many people, there are so many different types of eating disorders that you can't expect to know if someone has one or not because if you think you are you're working off the wrong assumptions because they happen in men they happen in women they happen in children they happen in, in adults they're not just they're not uh, specific to just a certain age group or a certain biological type so because i wasn't giving my because it was biologically based i was not giving my brain the nutrients it needed to function at full capacity so because of that, it ended up that my brain was not processing things correctly, which is why the paranoia took over in the dining hall that everybody is going to, everybody's looking at me. Nobody was looking at me anymore and they're looking at anybody else. But that's how my brain worked it out because it didn't have what it needed to work correctly. As I started working through recovery, my counselor connected me with a dietitian. Now she had asked about that numerous times in the past. I said, no, I got it under control. Um, 
And then 20, 2016, she was not relenting. I, I was not going to win the battle. I just wasn't going to win. After about four or five weeks, I finally learned I wasn't going to win. She wasn't letting go. So that's all we were talking about until. So got with the dietitian and came up with a meal plan. And a, a, a meal plan is based on the diabetic exchange principle. So with, with diabetes, they have, you know, there's exchanges, certain amount of servings of carbs, fats, and proteins. And those are determined by what the gram content is of those different nutrients as you look at the serving sizes. So key is looking at the serving size on a label and then applying it to what you need. So for me, um, like for breakfast, it's three carbs, three proteins, three fats, servings. So for me, how that plays out is that I'll have a cup of cottage cheese, and I usually do 4% milk fat, so I get the fat content with it. Do a cup of cottage cheese, I'll do a, a pack of instant oatmeal, and some other carb. It might be an English muffin with butter, it might be a single pop tart, it could be something, or something like that. Um, and, and that gives me my breakfast. And then for my morning snack, I'll have a Greek yogurt. And that you know, takes care of where I'm looking. And where I'm going with this is that as I started learning how to eat and learning how to eat correctly, and I ate, but I wasn't eating correctly. And I'm not going to say healthy. I'm going to say correctly. As I started to learn to eat correctly, then change is happening. Now, yes, I gained weight. And yes, that freaked me out and that was to be expected. But that is because my body was responding in the way it was trained. Because you think about it. For me, I have what they call OSFED, Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorder. Most people think of eating disorders as anorexia, bulimia, and, and, and binge eating. There are so many more. The one I have is basically I don't meet all the diagnostic criteria for anorexia or bulimia but I have disordered eating. So I have an eating disorder. It just hasn't gone to the extreme, but it still needs to be treated because I'm damaging my body. So within that, um, with that eating disorder, as I started eating correctly, my brain started getting the nutrients as I mentioned. My body started responding. First of all, I started feeling a little pudgy. And that was because my body, up to then, I had been starving my body. I had been um, numbing the hunger, but I wasn't eating. So my body was starting to store the nutrients I was giving it because my body didn't trust me to take care of it properly and consistently. So think of when you're out running, all right, and you're thirsty, you're guzzling water like crazy because. I'm at a drinking fountain. My, the only place I have for another five miles, I'm guzzling every ounce of water I can. Same kind of thing. My body was storing those nutrients like crazy because it was starving for them. And I was finally giving it what it needed. But it hadn't learned yet that I was going to be consistent and faithful to it to take care of it the right way. So it was hoarding them. As my body, as I continued to eat correctly, and my body realized it could trust me. Then my body got what they call a set weight, which is what the weight your body is designed to be at and is different for each person. I will not talk numbers. I never talk numbers. What I will say is that if you had told me 
six, seven, ten years ago, that I was going to be, be where I am now as my body set weight, I would have felt like I was going to be severely overweight. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm totally content. My, I am healthy now where I can pick up my mom who's 100 pounds and transfer her from her chair to her bed. My family is benefiting because I'm taking care of myself. I would not, my body, my bone structure would not have had the strength to do what it needed to do for care for mom if I was not where I was now. Where this came into play early on in my recovery is that my brain started to clear. I didn't realize how foggy my brain was from not eating right correctly until there were a couple days in particular where I started realizing as I heard more and more that I was not my eating disorder. And again, that's one of those things you got to hear over and over and over again for it to start making sense. I was starting to be able to de- decipher between my eating disorder voice and my voice. And how it would come out to play is this. One of my triggers, one of my red flags, is if I go look in the refrigerator, I'm hungry to get something. And I'm just overwhelmed with choices, and I can't figure it out. And my, my, my brain might be overwhelmed with other things I'm dealing with. If I can't make a choice in, in really quick time, I shut down, forget it, I'll just get something snack. And I just shut it off. So this was happening at work one day. And I was looking in the refrigerator trying to, trying to get something. I couldn't decide. And I was like, okay, wait. And then I realized that's my eating disorder voice telling me not to eat. It wasn't me. I was hungry. My eating disorder voice was the one telling me, shut the door, you can't make a decision. And what I... And in recovery, it's really helpful for people to do this, is to give a name to your eating disorder. I named mine Ed. And because as you do that, you start realizing that you are not your eating disorder. Your eating disorder is part of you, but it's not you. And it's critical to separate yourself from it. So as I started realizing these things coming up, I would verbally say, Ed, shut up. And I, would, I had to shut him up verbally. And then I had to take the next step and do what I knew I needed to do. So Ed, shut up. And I went back in and I'm, okay, I'm going to grab a yogurt. I can make a quick decision. That'll work. And it was a baby step, but it was a step. And it started separating. It started clearing the fog in the brain. And, and that made all the difference in the world. I still remember telling my counselor, my dietitian both, I can't believe how clear my head is. It literally, I, I, there's no other way. I wish I could find a way to describe it. But it was so clear. And, and the Asian told me, he said, because you're giving yourself the nutrients it needs. And let me put it this way. Carbs are the only thing that give your brain energy. Fats are the only thing that give your, your body the sensation of being full. And it protects your vital organs. And protein is the only thing that rebuilds the strength in your body. So... I have a real problem with diet culture because if that is the way we are designed, if your body is designed that way, why on God's green earth would you deny what it needs? I'm not going to get into any more details. I'm going to leave it at that. But if carbs give your brain the energy it needs, why would you deny it and think you're doing yourself well? If fats protect your body, and also give you the sensation so you know when to stop eating that your body is full. Why would you deny it? Balance, eating correctly is the issue, not, not the extremes. 
I'm curious there, you know, and you, you talk about the eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And in hindsight, I'm trying to work out, you know, was that a was that a call for help? Or was that a numbing process? Or was it a uh, inflicting pain on yourself? Or can, can you elaborate on that in any way? All three. Okay. The way I describe it is that, like I mentioned earlier, activity was my number. And okay. how it played out for me is this with the eating disorder. If I'd stayed busy, I didn't have to think. If I didn't have to think, I didn't have to feel. And if I didn't have to feel, I didn't have to deal with my stuff. And all of us have stuff. Mm. So yeah, the eating disorder was a number. It was a cry for help because I knew that I was hurting and I didn't know how to ask for help. So, and, and so, yeah, it was all of those. It's, yeah, and I, it's, I, I hadn't appreciated how many different forms of eating disorder there are. And, and I, I'm, I was very interested as well to saying that not all eating disorders, and it's probably true with a lot of habits, that they don't, they don't, they don't, you know, some aren't necessarily as externally, how do I describe this, uh, damaging or obvious. But that doesn't mean you don't have a habit either. Right, right. In my case, okay, um, I, I ended up having some biological effects of my eating disorder. Now, thankfully, they have healed. But mm. my, I have osteoporosis. I don't know that it is fully reversed. It can be over time. And I have to stay consistent, consistent with it. But I also had um, mitral valve prolapse, which is a common heart, you know, cardiac effect of anorexia. Now, that has resolved itself because I have been taking care of myself. And I never would have known that if I hadn't, I was having um, a knee surgery or something and somebody found it or whatever. Um, so, you know, so yeah, you don't know. Your, your other question was that if eating disorders are part of self-harm, yes, they are. Because internally, the internal process, it, eating disorders have to do with emotions that aren't being dealt with. They're not about food and they're not about vanity. They're not about body image. It's about emotions. And because they are emotions that we don't like to feel that we have shut off doesn't mean the emotions aren't there trauma and emotions have a way of working themselves out in different ways so for me eating disorder is an addiction it's on that same spectrum i ended up having an eating disorder my brother has alcoholism so um the recovery process is very similar the only the main difference what i would say is that the one differentiating point between recovery for an eating disorder and then recovery for any other addiction is that every other addiction recovery is, is first step recovery or one step recovery basically is doing away with what you're addicted to, avoiding the alcohol, avoiding the drugs, avoiding the whatever. Eating disorders, you have to face what you're trying to avoid. That's the difference because if you avoid food, you're going to die. And that, in, in that aspect, I will never say one recovery is harder than the other. I'm saying eating disorder recovery is different because you have to face what you've been trying to avoid instead of withdrawal. So for someone 
my brother, alcohol recovery, he knows it. He, he's like, I, I just don't want to go to the bar. So you can drive right by. But for an eating disorder person, you got to go to the grocery store and get food. You can't just drive around by. Not if you want to survive. So that, that's one of the differences. Um, but, um, you know, when I say it's about, you know, it, it was about self-harm, it's also because, because you're crying out, because you're hurting so much that hurt is coming out in other ways. You know, for me at one point in time, as I started dealing with stuff with my counselor, I dabbled in cutting for a short period of time. Not real deep, but just, just enough. And we, she, and I had a conversation about that too. Um, I was talking for my life that night. Um, so, you know, they are about self-harm. And sometimes they're about self-harm in a way that you think no one else is going to notice. And yet you still get the satisfaction, as, as weird as that sounds, of, of it's, it, self-harm is letting that emotion out that you don't know how to get out in any other way. Mm. So... Can I ask why your brother was an alcoholic? Um, I, I, I don't know what triggered it for him. Um, my dad is al alcoholism runs in our family. My dad is, is, is in recovery 29 years. We did an invention on my dad in 1991. That's what led to their divorce. That's what led to one of the times I was suicidal. Um, so, you know, because, because it's genetic, um, it, we have addictive personalities in our family. It comes out in different ways for each person. Um, for me, it came out through an eating disorder. For him, it came out through, through alcoholism. Um, you know, what triggers it from one person and not another, I don't know. But I do know that you know, it's biologically based, it's genetic. Um, it doesn't mean my other family members, my other family members may have a propensity to it as well. And for whatever reason, maybe it hasn't triggered in that. In that. I don't know. So, um, I don't know. Hmm. Um. Your your expression of foggy brain, I find quite. Mm -hmm. uh, I know. I imagine you know a lot of people. If, if you can talk to us more about that, because I'm I'm quite curious about the expression and and if you can explain, I suppose in hindsight, what that was all about. Well, I think the foggy brain is when you're eating the sort of voice is the loudest voice in your head, and you know, recovery is about learning how to shut it up, how, how to silence it. And as it silences it, then you are able to have the joy of rediscovering yourself. Because when we're wrapped up in our eating disorders, we, are, we take on that eating disorder as our identity. Well, I'm an anorexic. No, I'm Sue and I struggle with an eating disorder. I am not my eating disorder. Mm. So the eating disorder brain and that voice is the, is, is the loudest one in our mind. And it silences the other stuff. It, it smothers everything else so that you can't find yourself, not easily. And that's where that step ahead concept come in. That's where the reaching out for help while helping somebody behind you or whatever comes in. Because if a voice is smothered that long, if you're buried in an avalanche, you cannot dig yourself out and you're getting smothered and over time you will die. And it's the best analogy I can give to an eating disorder. If you are buried in an eating disorder, you cannot get out on your own and over time you will die. Eating disorders are the most lethal of all mental health issues. 
not only because of the suicide involved, but also because of the damage it does on the body. How common do you think it is? Eating disorders? Mm. Very common. And I wish I had the statistic in my mind in, uh, up front. Um, they are much more prevalent than people realize because, again, because you don't know, you can't know. There is a website, National Eating Disorder Association, at NIDA.org, I believe it is. And um, they have a screening tool on their website. And I highly encourage people to go to that. Um, they can go through a series of questions and it, it'll give you, you know, I don't want to say a, a definitive answer, but it will give you a good inclination about if there are some patterns in your life that might be worthy of more investigation. And they have a bunch of resources there. They have a hotline you can call um, because you don't know. You, you, you and I couldn't, couldn't tell. If we're in a room of 20 people, you know, odds are somebody else in there struggling with an eating disorder. That's, I was curious, you know, whether, you know, they talk about national pandemics, I suppose, which is quite poignant at the moment, but, you know, in the saying obesity is, it's crazy stats, mm -hmm. you know, could potentially anyone that's sort of in, sitting in the obese category you know, is that an eating disorder? Is that is that a a symptom of you know? I, again, I'm, I'm and I'm curious, and I'll come on to you know talking about depression. I mean, I've had depression myself twice in my life, and after a while, you sort of have come to realize that actually it's it's the symptom, not the cause. Mm -hmm. The depression is what is happening because of something else. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, then, you know, could you potentially sort of have a theory that's Obesity in general is, again, it's a symptom, but it's not the cause. Not always, because um, some people, their body chemistry is just designed to be larger. Okay. You know, and I yeah. think that's, what, that's one of the reasons I got into speaking to start with was to help break the stigmas around eating disorders. And it quickly morphed into breaking the stigma around mental health in general. And one of the things around eating disorders is that everybody has to be Slim and trim. Mm -hmm. What is wrong with someone being larger? Yeah. If that, is, if that is their body set weight based on their biology and their bone structure, I wouldn't want someone who is large like Shaquille O'Neal having to feel like he has to fit into a 150-pound body. Mm. You know, or, you know, now, and that's not to say that obesity is not an issue. That's simply to say is that fat is not a bad thing hmm. and fat and fat is a descriptor fat is not a personality True. and when we tell when we tell them oh man you're fat do you realize the harm you're doing in that hmm. because you you're trying to describe you're describing a visual perception that's all you're doing it one doesn't need to be described why are we so hooked up and so caught up on how somebody looks? Why, why are we? Mm. That drives half of this garbage. Why are we hooked up on that? Where is it written that you have to be, a man has to be 5'10", 170 pounds? And if he's 190, then God forbid he's overweight. And a woman needs to be 5'7", 130. And if you're 140, 150, or 100, you know, whatever, 
that it's off. Or who says you got to be have 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 the this the Sports Illustrated body? Where is mm. that? It's all about money. It's all it's mm. about. And the sad thing is, people are buying into it, and people are dying because we got sucked into it. So what I want, and part of what I'm doing, saying that if someone in your mind might look heavy set, that doesn't mean they have an eating disorder. It doesn't mean anything other than they're heavy set. That's between them and their doctor to decide. And sometimes doctors still have as bad of uh, prejudice about it as anybody else. But if, if someone, if, if I say, say I'm 5'7", if I'm 5'7", 190, now yeah, on the BMI scale, yeah, that's on the high end. But that's a piece of paper. If my blood works in line, and my heart's fine, and my body's doing just fine, then that's my body's set weight. What's the problem? Who are you to tell me I'm overweight? Mm. If, 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 my, if, 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 my, if my numbers at my doctor's office, and not about BMI, I'm not about BMI, it's a terrible, even though insurance goes with it, it is the worst indicator somebody has an, has an eating disorder. It's the worst thing. Because it doesn't show what's going on, on the inside. But anyway, um, getting on too many soapboxes here. I'm starting to run out of time here. No, um, it's, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm <laughs> curious. I'm, I'm curious about the disassociation aspect of it, and I'm also curious to know where Ed came from as a name. Um, I, I think eating simply eating disorder. Ed. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. But, <laughs> Sorry, but, but, I missed but, the connection yeah, no. there. <laughs> no, no, no. But, but but what's odd and what I laugh about is that Ed was the first person I, my, my dean of students in college was Ed Highland, and he was the first person I told. He's the one that asked the pivotal pivotal question about the rape. Mm. So even though I say Ed in terms of the eating disorder, Ed shut up. I would never tell Ed Highland shut up because he literally saved my life. Um, mm. So if anything, I kind of see it at, 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 as a really cool. Um, uh, parallel between Ed, Ed sharing Ed with Ed Highland, which gave me hope, which gave me power to tell Ed eating disorder to shut up. So, you you name you know Bobby there. Mm -hmm. Can I ask what has anything happened as a result of all this? No. Um, there was one point in time of my counselor, I thought of going down to Dayton where it happened and filing a police report simply for my healing. Um, I opted not to do that. Obviously, statute of limitations would not allow for anything. Um, it took me a long time, but I've forgiven him. And if anything, I have compassion towards him because if you think about it, what seven or eight-year-old knows about that kind of stuff? And especially enough to take that kind of action and to tell somebody to not say anything. And it mm -hmm. really makes me wonder what was happening in his life to cause mm -hmm. all that. I'm not saying I got there overnight. Yeah. Okay. I'm not saying I got there overnight and anyone struggling with it. I don't want you to hear that. Okay. That's mm -hmm. my story. Yeah. And that's different from anybody else's. The other thing I want to say is that um, my thought just left? Oh, it's just that I, when I started dealing with the rape in 2014, 
probably close to 30 years since everything happened. I experienced the same stuff then that someone experiences now as if it happened yesterday. Mm. So if someone is listening to this and has kept the secret, know and hear that there is help and there is hope and there's healing. And yes, it's going to feel like hell when you start letting the prison door open. But that's because you're letting yourself take that first step to walk out of that prison. So hear that. It will hurt. It is hard. It is hard. But you are worth it. And you are worthy of help and hope and health. And you are worthy of love. You did nothing wrong. You survived. You did everything right that day. You did nothing wrong. It is the perpetrator is the only one. And please, if you hear nothing else, hear that from me. You did nothing wrong. Thank you for sharing that. It needs to be said. It needs to be said often and loud. What impact has it had since, you know, I suppose you, you sort of, you know, you mentioned that, you know, really only the last six years or that you've, you know, but the consequence of, of what's going on around you, what, what has been the ripple, do you know? Oh, wow. It's been, um, it's been fantastic. My relationships with people have healed. It's, it's, it's critical for me to say right now that even though stuff was so wrong when I was growing up, my relationship with mom and dad is just fantastic. My dad is my biggest cheerleader. He is my absolutely biggest cheerleader. Um, mom, mom, obviously my relationship with mom is great. I'm a caregiver. Um, when there was one point in time that it was all on me, I would have called us estranged, but it was all on me because of, of how I was interpreting things. So I take full ownership of that. Where, what ripple effect has it has? I'm a published author. I self-published my first book last year. Um, I showed it earlier. This much I know the space between is on Amazon and Kindle. I'm a speaker. You know, I'm out speaking at conferences. I did two virtual mental health summits in May for Mental Health Awareness Month. So two global summits there. Um, this is, you know, I don't know how many podcasts this year, over 20 podcasts this year already. Um, international, you know, which is just blows me away. Uh, I'm a certified life coach. I'm a life transition coach, which means I help stuck people get unstuck. That's the best way to phrase it. Uh, next week, I take my master life coach class. So I'll be a master life coach after next week. And um, it, that, that's what I do. It's what I'm, uh, it's why I'm here is to help someone else take their next step. Is that your calling? Yeah, yeah. And it took a long time to realize this. And um, it took a couple other people telling me it was my calling to finally realize it. And honestly, when I became a life coach is when I realized it. And, and Rich Mullins, um, describe it as where your greatest joy and the world's greatest need intersect is your calling. And I have found my calling and I, I'm loving it. I'm full steam ahead. Absolutely loving it. 
I'm loving the body language. There's a smile from ear to ear. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then, and then again, it's, that's another confirmation, you know. It, it's fun to look back now, and, and I know we're running tight on time here. Um, you know, we're uh, um, looking back now and see so many things that happened in my life and how it led to this. I was a speech major in college. I wanted to teach high school. I ended up working on college campuses, and now I'm, you know, using speech and what I do now. And, you know, just it's just really wild to see how it all comes together. Uh, but, yeah, it brings me great joy, and, and I just – I love what I do. It's, it's just right. Um, it's just right. So. Do you like yourself? Do you love yourself? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And that took a long time to say as well. Uh, but I'm okay. I'm okay. You know what? I'm not the holy exception. I'm not the screw up. I bought into a whole lot of lies that I don't buy anymore. I have value. I have worth. And I have a story worthy of telling. And there's no shame in that. There's no shame in what happened to me because it's about somebody else's behavior. And my story is what I'm doing as a result of what somebody else did. That's where I take back control. That's where I take back the narrative. That's where I get, I get the final word. If we were to say, you know, fire in the belly in one or two words, mm -hmm. what would that be for you? What's your fire in the belly? You matter. Lovely. So you tell us again, where can people reach out? Where can people get the book? Where can people follow you and get more, learn more? Sure. Uh, I have a few different websites. Uh, mystepahead.com is, is the encouragement site. It's got blogs. It's got resources on there. Um, it's got a link to the book there. Uh, so mystepahead.com. You've got the book at Amazon and Kindle. It's called This Much I Know, The Space Between. Um, and if you get it, I'd really appreciate a, uh, a review as well. Um, I've, I've applied to be an author at a, book at a book fair, book festival in November. And the more reviews, the, help, the more it helps. <laughs> so, uh, and then SueBowles.com, that website started out as my speaking website. It is in the middle of getting revamped because I'm, I'm coaching as well. So I'm adding that element in there. And then ultimately I'm going to be adding the podcasts to that link as well. Uh, so all three of those, I'm also on social media, um, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under my step ahead. There's Facebook and Sue Bowles coaching on for, for uh, that as well. So a whole bunch of different ways to get a hold of me. Most of all, the, the, the bottom line messages reach out to me. If there's something I can do, I am a certified life coach. So I, and the school I went through is globally accredited. So the joy of, um, joy of, of the internet is that if there was someone in need down your street, I could help them out. So um, that's the joy is that we don't have to be in the same city. We don't even have to sit in the same office. We can do video sessions right now. That's no problem. So if there's something, if there's some kind of transition you're working through and you'd like some extra help, I would love to get in touch with you. Email me through those different aspects, different uh, websites and, and social media. We can get in touch and then see if we're a good match so we can help you take your next step ahead. You're beautiful. And thank you for, thank you for sharing. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. This is great. You're welcome. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And by the way, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that the people have been on. 
We've loads more episodes coming up soon, and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So, all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly, and be the mightiest version of you.